remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 398 and 399 or page 5 of your worship guide. This is God's Word. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest to work to do the work. And I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told him of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will rise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. I say for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we thank you that your word is truth. And this morning, whether we need it for nourishment to our soul or healing to wounds or even direction for our path, we would ask, O oh Lord, that you would speak for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 2011, my wife and I, May 1st to be specific, had celebrated our first year of marriage. You know, we were veterans at that point. We, we understood all that we needed. We were ready to take on the world. And so our decision was to take 22 college students across the seas. Um, there is a saying around the office that says, don't do what Danny does. That would fit that category. We were in Singapore. We had taken some college students on a, a summer mission trip, you might say. And I don't know how much you know about Singapore. Uh, if you see its pictures, it probably looks beautiful. That's not where we stayed, but that's what you see. Uh, but there's an area. You might call it downtown Singapore. It's called Marina Bay. Marina Bay Sands. It, it's got the, the greatest, the newest, the latest technology. It's, it's beautiful. 
there's different establishments that would fall under that category of Marina Bay. And one of them, they call it the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. It is, it's magnificent. I've never seen a hotel like it. It literally looks like a spaceship is on top of it. And it's some 60 floors high. There's three different pillars. And on top there's an infinity pool. The only reason I know that is because that was part of our trip. We, we did not stay there, nor did we get in the pool. We only had enough money to see the pool. And so that's, that's what we did. That's year one of marriage for you. Um, but as we were asking questions about, uh, to some of the locals, we, we asked them, hey, tell us about this hotel. And uh, if my memory serves me, they began building. It was meant to be a five and some change billion dollar project. And they had to delay it by probably four months due to labor costs and, and things of that nature. But the government was so, uh, you know, they wanted it done so quickly that they began to fine the company a million dollars a day that it did not finish. Three months later, they, they finished, but you could do the math. That's quite the, the bill. Before you build something, you want to count the cost, don't you? There's a, another building in the 1800s of Bavaria, King Ludwig II. I had to look him up. Uh, he was on the throne. He was an unstable man, probably mentally and in some ways physically. He was older in his age. He had an obsession for building castles. And so in the 1800s, he decided he wanted to build an exact replica of, uh, of Versailles, the Palace of Versailles. And so he wanted a 70-room to the uh, you know, color of the room. I want it to look just like that. They had spent a quarter of a billion dollars in about four years and only finished 20 rooms. And he died, and they stopped building. Uh, it has been torn down and to use for different things. But you, you get the point, don't you? It's one thing to have a vision. It, it's one thing to want to see something happen, but without a plan, that's a problem. And so when we look in Nehemiah, he's got a vision. We've been hearing about it. He's been praying to the Lord. He has a vision. But what's his plan? What does it mean to count the cost? And I want us to look at that this morning under three headings. Investigate. Invite. Couldn't come up with a better word, so I went with entrust. E-N, not I-N. Investigate. Invite. And entrust. What do we see Nehemiah doing? Verse 9, it says that I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. He, he has gotten permission from the king to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. We get no commentary about four months worth of Nehemiah's travels. He gets the permission and he leaves. And from when he gets the permission to when he arrives, we don't know a whole lot what has happened. But I want to be clear on a couple of things. Because some people have made some very extreme observations of that. They've picked, a, they've picked on Nehemiah, you might say. He moves his self to Jerusalem to rebuild a wall. He's got letters and an army and horsemen. And, and they pick on him and they say, Nehemiah, you're, you're not a great leader. You're not one of much faith. You had to go with letters and with an army. Why are they saying such things? Well... It's because they look at a contemporary of his, one who did it right before him. That is Ezra. 
And in Ezra chapter 8, you get this dialogue. Ezra is sharing a dialogue with himself with you. And, and he says, I was ashamed. I, I don't want to ask the king. I don't want to ask the king for help. I don't want to ask him for men or for protection. And the reason why Ezra has said that is because he has already told the people and the Babylonians or uh, the Persians at that point, God will protect us and he will do this work. And so Ezra says, I don't want your help. God will provide. That must be faith. Nehemiah, you have no faith. You understand those are two different scenarios. Ezra says no to help because his proclamation is God needs no help. He will provide for us. Ezra didn't ask for an army. He got one. Now, why did he accept the army? Perhaps it's because he's the cupbearer. He's got a highly esteemed position. He is leaving Persia. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to rebuild a city. He's got king's letters with permission. He's got the king's royal permission to do something. And if there's any opposition, well, who's going to stop it? Who's going to protect Nehemiah? Who's going to protect the people? Perhaps Nehemiah is exercising wisdom. And he's saying, well, I am the cupbearer. If there's any opposition to king, they will come after me. And what will I do to refuse them? Ezra. Ezra wanted to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah wants to rebuild the walls. And you can imagine an outsider looking at that thinking. That looks like a defensive move. So if there is opposition. Would they not come after him? Right off the bat. What do we see in Nehemiah chapter 2? Well I think it cautions us before we make hasty judgments, especially when we don't know the details. It should caution us. In our day, caution means don't go to social media when you're not quite sure of what's going on. We can have two different decisions being done in the right way. And that's where Nehemiah begins his investigation. As he leaves with letters and an army, the king's army, he arrives and what are we learning? Spent three days with the people. Perhaps he's, he's getting to know some of them. Who are you? What is it like to live here? He only knows what he's had reported to him. You know, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He's not from there. He is a descendant of people who are from there, but he has never seen the city with his own eyes. His entire life has been lived in exile. So he has no idea this city in which he has just descended upon. That tells you something about a vision, doesn't it? So wrapped up in God's promise to his people that I've never laid eyes on the exact city. And yet for months I will pray and ask God's hand of blessing. And so Nehemiah, he sees the city. He begins talking to people. Remember, he is a cupbearer, not an engineer. And so he goes out. You get the ge- geography here. Don't, don't be mixed up by all those terms. There are different locations within Jerusalem and there's differing opinions of where in Jerusalem they in fact are. But what Nehemiah is doing is he goes on a, a secret midnight tour, you might say. He doesn't tell anyone what he's doing. He's got a couple of people, perhaps a horse or a donkey. He's riding and he wants to go see it with his own eyes. 
He wants to understand its city, and he doesn't even see the whole city. Perhaps only half the city based on its location of what we see. But he's got a first-hand experience now, an account of when we say Jerusalem has been ransacked, that the walls are down, they have been destroyed. He sees with his own eyes. It's powerful, isn't it? Perhaps some of you have experienced something like that before. Do you remember back in August of 2005? That was the destructive storm of Hurricane Katrina. Maybe you saw news shots. If you remember correctly, those people were displaced for months. Some even forever. They never went back. Some came to Georgia. I don't know if you met any of them. In 2006, I took a spring break trip down to New Orleans to see it. And I want you to understand what you hear and what you see from a TV versus what you see in front of you. Hard data. It's drastically different. Words cannot describe the destruction of those homes. You, you begin asking questions. I see these weird markings and, and paints on the house. What does that mean? And you begin to find out it's lives that were taken. You go into the homes and you see their possessions destroyed. I, I distinctly remember walking into a house and thinking, what was here? There's this black line and I don't understand. And they had to explain it to me. That's where the floodwaters were. And it was at the top of the roof. It was at the ceiling. The house was entirely underwater. You remember those images. The smells. And it changes what you think. It gives you a a clearer, a fresh understanding of what's actually happened. And that's what Nehemiah has done. He's heard the reports. He's talked to a couple of people. But with his own eyes, he has seen the destruction of the walls. He has seen the the state of the city. And so he plans. And he works hard. But Nehemiah knows that working hard does not guarantee success. We have to to work hard, but we have to to do it the right way. We We have to do the right work. We have to do it at the right time. And so this cupbearer, he's, he's trying to figure it out. Well, what's happened? And what do we need to do? How do we understand what comes next? Nehemiah is a great Presbyterian. He understands that God is sovereign. But that does not negate his responsibility. He comes in. And he looks. The sovereignty of God leads Nehemiah to act. It leads him to work. It leads him to decide, to research. You see, prayer and and planning, they're not opposites in Nehemiah's mind. They're contemporaries. They work together. They go hand in hand. And so he sees the state of the city and says, we, because of God, need to rebuild this. You understand that logic, don't you? That is, well, that is the Great Commission. You understand the sovereignty of God and how it moves his people to act. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So sit around. Be quiet. Take it easy. No, what does Jesus say? One word. Go. You need to go do something. 
because I am sovereign. This is what Nehemiah is saying to the people. I see that God is in control. And therefore we must do something. And he goes as far as to say, the Lord has put it on my heart. I'm not just investigating because I'm a great man. He was given a vision, you might say, by God. And so instead of taking permission to not do anything, Nehemiah investigates. He researches. And he uses the gifts that God has given him to focus on what God has called him to do. First, we see that he investigates. Secondly, we we see that he invites Nehemiah from that midnight tour. He he returns, whether he returns in the middle of the night, early parts of the morning, or maybe some people are already up. We don't know. He returns. And does he go right to some people to talk or does he wait a few hours? They've gotten their coffee. They're, They're a little bit more alert. We don't know. But what we do know is Nehemiah returns and he gathers these individuals. You see it. The officials, the nobles, the priests, Jews. He's just talking about the leaders of that community. He gathers them together. He's ready to tell them something. He's ready to talk. I've seen the city and I'm I'm ready to tell you about it. And what does he do? How does he speak to them? Gosh, you Jews are a mess. You screwed this thing up. I have a plan for your life. Let me tell you what we're going to do. That's not what Nehemiah says. He, he doesn't speak as a, a spectator. He doesn't speak as a, as a visitor. He speaks as a citizen. And what does he say to them? Not you, but we. We must rebuild this wall. We have suffered derision. We are in trouble. He has a vision and puts himself inside of it. I'm not an outsider. I'm with you. You are my people and I am with you. We're in disgrace. Can't you see it? We are the laughing stock of the nations. Everyone is poking at us. They're making fun of us. We're in disgrace. What are we going to do about that? He says, join with me. Let's rebuild the walls. Let's gather our people. Let's work at this. He's not having a call to Jewish nationalism. This isn't a let's get this wall up so we can return to our glory days and and herald the great history of what it means to be Jewish. He's He's not concerned about Jewish nationalism. He's concerned about the covenant making and covenant keeping God. Nehemiah knows his Old Testament well, specifically the Psalms. He knows that Psalm 48 is speaking that God is to be praised among the people. That this great city of Jerusalem has a great king and its people are supposed to be that of joy. And he looks out and he says, where's the joy? Where is the praise? You have forgotten who you are, is what he is saying. You have forgotten your identity. And he's recognizing and he's telling the people, when you forget who you are, it doesn't matter what you do. He's telling them, we need to do something because we are something. He's not saying do something to become something. He's saying we are God's people. We should not live like this. This should not be the way in which God's people live. Remember 
who you are. And he knows. He lived in exile. He knows that the people disobeyed. He knows that they've been exiled. That's his home. And yet he says, that's not my true home. This is where God has called us to be. Let us rebuild. We rebuild because of who we are. Don't be better. Remember who you are. Is that you this morning? That's what we do every Lord's Day. It's a reminder of our identity. We are here because of whose we are. Do you come into this place thinking, I hope to experience something. I, I hope to I hope to do better. Or do you come in here because you are a child of the Most High King who has called His people into His presence? How do you treat the Lord's Day? And that's what we're here to do. God tells us to work six days. But one day is sufficient to telling you who you are that it should change everything in which you do. That's what we're here. Is that what you define worship to be? Or does it need to be some high-profile speaker? That You clearly know that's not me. Does it need to be some fun band, some grand music? Or could you just meet with your Heavenly Father and be reminded that you are a child of the King? And in this great city, there's a great King who calls for His people to be joyful. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Remember who you are. That's what Paul says. You are Christ's. If you are, if you are Christ, then you have been raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, then you are to seek the things above. And I love how he says that. We, we always like to stop right there. If you are Christ, seek the things above. Do you know what Paul says next? He says, if you are Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. He's not just telling you to just have some lofty thinking. He's telling you to always put your sights on Jesus. You always look to Jesus. Wherever he is, you're looking at him. And that's what Paul is telling us. It changes everything in which we engage in. And that's what Nehemiah says. I invite you. Let's rebuild this wall. Let's rebuild this city. He goes from investigation to invitation. And then he's going to finish with saying, we're going to entrust this work to God. The vision is clear. He's made it clear. I want to rebuild the walls. But what it's going to take to accomplish it, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard. And there's opposition. And in case you didn't see it, it shows up twice in our passage. You get it in verse 10. You learn about Sanballat, the Horonite, and uh, Tobiah, the Ammonite. And then you learn about them again in verse 19. And they add one to their trinity, you might say. The trinity of evil. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. What are we to understand about these names? They're, just, they're not just three random people. You and I are supposed to understand something about them. Sanballat, the Horonite. What are we to understand we look outside the Bible to some of the early manuscripts and what we find is, well, he's a governor of Samaria. 
Tobiah, he's an Ammonite servant. And some traditions hold that he has some descendants that uh, were seeking to be a part of the Jewish community in Ezra. And they were rejected. And so there's a, there's a possibility that he was supposed to be a part of this people and he was kicked out for one reason or another. You can imagine his frustration. Geshem, he's a powerful man, you might say, in Arabia. What's the point of these? Well, let me just put it out here for you. Nehemiah is facing opposition from the northeast. That's Ammon. That's Tobiah. He is facing opposition uh, from the northwest. That's Samaria. That's Sanballat. And he's got opposition in the southeast. That's Edom. And Moab. That's Geshem. What is Nehemiah telling you? What is he telling the people? We're surrounded. There's nowhere for us to go. There's opposition at every single turn. And in fact, if you read closely enough, I think he might be saying there's another one. How do these people know about what we're doing? Perhaps there's opposition within. They're not just all around. We might have a traitor amongst us. And this is the work that God has called us to do. There's opposition. There's always opposition. There's always opposition in the kingdom of God. That's true for Nehemiah. That's true for us. You have a group of people here in Nehemiah. I made mention of something like this in Sunday school, but Sinbad and Tobiah don't hang out. They don't go out for drinks on Friday night. These guys have nothing in common. There's nothing about one another that they like. Except for they hate Jerusalem. You see King Artaxerxes. He's Persian. Persia didn't destroy Jerusalem. Assyria and Babylon did. And that's where you find these three men. That is their heritage. And they come with a common dislike for the Jews. And they want to prevent the work. And what do they do? They don't start a war. They use words. They're very cunning. It's trickery. What is it that they say in their opposition? What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And you can imagine what it would have been like to be one of the people. You have just heard this grand invitation to what we're called to do. And you hear an enemy say, are you rebelling against the king? It's that same Phrase that shows up in Ezra that actually stopped the work. You can hear it, can't you? I'm going to do this for the Lord. Do you remember that scene? How could you do that? You failed so miserably last time. It's the evil intentions of the evil one. We don't always need violence and wars to oppose one another. Sometimes it's just a Snide remark. Sometimes it's just an evil statement. But what does Nehemiah say? This is not my mission. This is God's mission. And don't you find that interesting? That the people say, are you rebelling against the king? What is Nehemiah holding in his hands? Letters from the king. But what does he say? Then I replied to them, 
the God of heaven. He transcends an earthly king and goes to his heavenly king and says, the God of heaven is with us. He will make our hands prosper. I have the permission of an earthly king, but that's not what I need. I need my heavenly king to be on board with this. I need my heavenly king to be at work. And if he is at work, it doesn't matter what you're trying to do. He will make us prosper. And so he recognizes there is no need to be alarmed because there's always opposition. In fact, maybe we should say as a church, when we're not facing opposition, we should probably be alarmed. Nehemiah tells these men, you have no right no claim, no portion. He's essentially saying there's not going to be a single part of what's being done here that you can be a part of. You're not going to be in our worship. You're not going to be a citizen and you're not going to live here. You have no room in this city. And so Nehemiah entrusts mission to God. It's a very straightforward story. It's not even that hard to understand, is it? And you could simply be saying, but you know, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. The the name of Jesus doesn't even show up here. Where is Christ in here? Friends, I need to help you understand something. You do not know nor understand your New Testament if you do not know and if you don't understand your Old Testament. Jesus isn't new in the New Testament. Jesus has always been around. And so when you ask the question, you look at Nehemiah and you say, where is Christ? My question to you is, do you not see him? You can't see Christ all over this. When you look at Nehemiah, what are you to understand? He's a man in despair. He looks upon the people of God in the city and he is is broken and he is praying. And so what does he do? He seeks to rebuild it. He seeks to restore it. Who is your great king? Is he not one? Who looks upon the people of God. Rides into Jerusalem. Broken over its state. And says. I will rebuild it. Nehemiah is looking at an earthly city. But your king looks at a heavenly one. He comes in here and he says. My people are broken. And rather than saying. We need to do something. Let's get together. What does Christ do? I'll do it. I don't need you to do it. I'll do it. I will give of myself. I will rebuild this temple in three days. Isn't that the words of your king? I will restore the tribes of Jacob. I will protect this city. I will provide for this city. You see, what you get in Nehemiah is so much more pattern in your life Today, then we tend to give it credit. Nehemiah tells the people, we're in trouble. We need to rebuild. And Christ says, I will rebuild. Nehemiah says, we need to count the costs. We need to understand what has happened. Did the Lord Jesus not count the cost? Did he not understand the state of the city? You didn't have a king who on his throne in heaven looked down into a world and says, we should send somebody. We should redo this. We should move. He enters into the world, this world, and he rebuilds it from the inside out. 
You have Nehemiah who is saying, let's rebuild the walls. Why the walls? Well, the temple's within. It's not just a a building of walls to, to protect the people, to allow them to worship corporately. It is that. But there's a purity aspect to what Nehemiah is doing. You recognize when he builds these walls, what he is saying is, this is what it's like to be a citizen of this country, of this city, of this land. When you live in here, this is what we believe. This is how we act. This is how we live. Does Jesus not tell us that? Isn't that what he says to you and to me in Matthew chapter 16? When he talks about the keys to the kingdom of God, what is he talking about? I'm going to rebuild these walls and to be in my kingdom. This is what your life needs to look like. The simple answer is it's called church membership. Why do we harp on church membership? Because it's not optional. It's pivotal to the Christian life. Because what Jesus is saying is if you want to be in my kingdom, this is what you need to believe. This is what you need to live like. And you do so here. Now, I'm not trying to recruit all of you who might be visitors. We would love to have you. And if you want to talk about a new membership class, we would love to talk to you. I'm talking to you members. Because what is Nehemiah saying? Remember who you are. This is how you and I are to live. When you are welcomed into the church, it is a declaration of the assurance that you have before the king. That you belong here. We don't just recite these membership vows for fun. It doesn't just make us countercultural so we can look different. It's biblical. Jesus is saying, my heavenly kingdom needs to look a lot like my earthly kingdom. And therefore, we gather the people inside the walls. And what do those walls look like? Church. Church. That's why you get up every Sunday morning. Come to church. Because you're coming home. You get a taste of where you're going. You remember who you are. Jesus says count the cost. And you remember that great parable that he tells in Luke chapter 14, don't you? You cannot be my disciple if you what? Well, if you don't hate your father, mother. I know it's a little bit probably taboo to say that on Mother's Day. If you don't hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your maid servant, everybody. You cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? He's calling himself God. That's what he's doing. Who can make such a claim but God himself? And so he's saying, you need to investigate and count the cost. Do you believe me to be God? Because if you do, then you keep reading. And you say you pick up your cross and you carry it daily. And then he gives you the parable of the builder and the king. What is he saying to you? You need to know who I am. You need to investigate. Do I give of my life to this king? Will I serve this king? Or do I consider my personal autonomy more important? Is my own throne of greater value? That's why we think of Jim Elliot. He he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what's taking place in 
Nehemiah. He says, we're going to count the cost. The cost of what it means to be the people, the family of God. And if he's God, he will help us to prosper. And so you might say it's a reformation. He's reforming the church. You could be asking, when do we reform the church? You always reform the church when the word of God is not central. When the word of God is not central to the life, the teaching and the preaching, to every component of your church, you need a reformation. And in fact, you don't just need a reformation, you need a restoration. When we talk about reform, we always think about the word change. That's not what we mean. We mean return. We mean return to the word. Return to the king. Return to your God. Return to your father who is in heaven. But you first must investigate. And if you investigate and you find Jesus is who he says he is, you know what you'll do? You'll invite others. Who doesn't want to be a a part of a city, a people, a fellowship like that? And as you seek to do that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get made fun of. You might lose a job. You might lose some friends, reputation. And you'll be forced to entrust it to the Lord. What is of greater value? You and I will count the cost. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we thank you that this is your word. It is one that is eternal. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't change only. It also means that it is still true. That it is still beneficial. That it's not just facts from the past, but it's patterns in which we still find ourselves. And so we pray, help us to better understand Nehemiah. Not just as a leader, but as a Christian. That we would emulate things of Christ's likeness. Things that we see in Him that are patterned off of Christ. And we pray with thanksgiving as Nehemiah was able to count the cost because Jesus counted the cost. And so we pray, would you help us? Help us to investigate. Who are you, Jesus? Help us to invite. May we tell others of Jesus. Help us to entrust ourselves and our mission. That is the enjoyment and the glory of God us to entrust it in Christ. And all for his glory we pray. Amen.